This, yeah. this is Genesis chapter 12, verses 11 to 13, and it says, When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. I'm seeing how I said it. Let's, let's pray. Father, this morning, we ask that you would teach us what it means to walk in the goodness of who you are. And that we would understand that throughout the scriptures, there are people who are knuckleheads. And that you are a gracious and good God who comes and rescues and saves despite of our knuckleheadedness. And I ask that today we would begin to walk in the truth of who you are so the world would know who you are. Amen. Have a seat. All right. So back in 1942, there's a great poet and theologian named Dr. Seuss. And he wrote a book called Horton Hatches an Egg, in which he wrote this. The elephant makes a statement. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant, and an elephant's faithful. All right. Some of you read the book or watched the movie. I don't know. And so if you were, if you were here at the end of uh, 2016, I did this 10-week series, and I told you we would come back and go over some of your questions that you asked us, and we would answer those. So I am going to be that elephant over the next 16 to 18 weeks. Uh, we did this series, as I said, uh, called What in the World Part 1. We had questions in the scriptures that sometimes you read them and you go, oh, what, what does that mean? And like when Jesus says, hate your father and mother, and you ha- actually had a good childhood, and you're like, why would I hate my mom and dad? Or where the Apostle Paul says it's not good for a man to touch a woman, and you're a dude, and you got married, you're like, that's why I got married, so I could touch her. You know, it's like, why, 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 would he, why would he say this? So we answered those questions as well as some other questions in that and asked you to write down your what in the world, world questions. So over the next 18 weeks, including Mother's Day and Father's Day, we're going to answer uh, many of your questions. We also have some that were kind of shorter to answer. And so we put those in blogs and we'll be posting those on our website. OurElement.org, we have a website, we actually have blogs, we try and update it every single week. I know none of you guys read it, but hey, we're going to answer questions as blogs. We're going to answer 30 plus questions, alright, so we're going to get all that together. Uh, this week we're calling this uh, Sister Wives, not like Big Love, but you'll see it's a play on words and how we're doing this. All of our decor kind of goes with that. None of these words are kind of meant to go together, so if it's like, what's the fire zealots? It's fire, and then zealots, or what's the money needles, or you know... Or, gee, what's sus parenting? You know, I, just, they're all different words, okay? It's kind of to go with, these all came out of the questions you guys asked. So, uh, this is one of the first what in the world questions we got, and this is it. In Genesis, lots of dudes, Abraham especially, are lying about their wives being their sisters, and then God blesses them. But they lied. What in the world? It's a great question. It's going to be a whole lot of fun to answer. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. As you do that, or to you version, whichever one, as you do that, the question says lots, and if lots in your mind is two, well then that's lots. Okay, but it's really, it's really just two people. Abraham and his son Isaac, like father, like son. In Genesis 12, God comes to a man called Abraham, and God is going to establish this covenant and relationship with Abraham. God blesses him and promises Abraham that he will eventually have a son that will lead to a son, to a son that eventually leads to God's son, Jesus. Abraham doesn't understand this in much of his life. You will see he takes three decades before he even gets his own promised son. And when God actually shows up to Abraham, he could be upwards of 75 years old. So like you're thinking of retirement, life's done, and then boom, God shows up and a whole new adventure awaits you. So Abraham packs up his family, gets his walker and his diaper, and he goes to the land of Canaan. I hope I'm not too offensive today, by the way. Uh, 
chapter 12, verse 5, at the end it says, When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem. And Abram, God changes his name to Abraham, so it's the same guy, to the Oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. So Canaan at this time, it's a dark place. It needs God's light. And this tells us today that it's okay for you and I to hang out with messed up and screwed up people because we are also messed up people. But we're not, we're supposed to go out and reach and share God's love and His grace and His goodness. But in the midst of that, try not to become just as screwed up as everybody else. We're meant to bring light. Now, Abraham is going to lose sight of this for just a little bit, which is where this what in the world question comes from. So what comes next is going to be this crazy story. And ladies, if you're married, you should never complain about your husband again after today. Okay, that's where we're going. It's an incredible story about honesty in the Bible. You see the tragic failures of the heroes of the faith. This is why we trust the scriptures because it doesn't pull any punches. It doesn't deify anybody. It just shows us exactly who they are. Abraham's faith is imperfect, but his faith is in a good and holy and faithful God. So Genesis 12, verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So where's this land? That's the land that God sent him to. There's a famine there. Sometimes God leads us to a place that is hard. That's hard. Abraham is in a place of want. In the church, there's this thing called prosperity theology today that will tell you if you have faith and love God, then everything's taken care of. Not true. God many times puts us in a place to be tested, so we trust his faithfulness. So so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there. Uh, Down's not good. Hell is down. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, to Sarah, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. Now, this is, she's sweaty. She's on a camel. She's probably covered in dust and dirt. So ladies, when when your husband kind of starts a conversation this way, know that sin is in short order, okay? <laughs> oh, you've been working in the yard all day. Oh, you smell like sweat. I love that smell. Hey, I got an idea. Yeah, it's coming. It's coming. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, then it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared again for your sake. He's thinking in his head that these Egyptians are horrible, evil, nasty people. I better protect myself. What he doesn't do is turn from his sin and go home. God never called him to go to Egypt. God called him to go to Canaan and trust him there. But Abraham doesn't go back. He just keeps going forward in his sin. Guys, I'll tell you, sin does not fix sin. Sin and sin and sin just makes more sin verse 14 when abram entered egypt the egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful and when the princes of pharaoh saw her they praised her to pharaoh and the woman was taken into pharaoh's house what does abraham do see ya nothing nothing it's interesting though sarah doesn't say anything either she doesn't say anything at all i can't imagine a woman a woman like that (laughs) that's not derogatory in any way but most women hear something like this they'll look at their husband and say don't you even think about it Right? I mean, seriously, how many of you ladies would be like, what? That is my husband. He is a liar. Kill him. <laughs> yes, yes. Or, I don't know, maybe she could be thinking, uh, Abraham's now a nomad. He lives in a tent from place to place. She's like, you want to give me to a dude with the house? Fine. Bye. Right? I'm out. So Pharaoh takes her to the palace. This is very ominous because what does Pharaoh do with ladies in the palace? Breaks commandments. That's what he does. Okay, verse 16. <laughs> And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. So he gets lots of stuff because his girl is in Pharaoh's house. You know what we call that today? A pimp. That's what we call it today. 
gets even worse. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh's like, got a new woman. This is great. Hey, baby, what's up? Boom, disease. Now, it doesn't say what it was, but I got a good idea where. That's Okay? Because God's got a sense of humor. If you're here on Good Friday, when the, when the Philistines took God's ark and they, and they tried to embarrass God, God gave them all plagues of hemorrhoids. So, it's not beyond the scope of reality here. Verse 18. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? <laughs> I think Abram's out taking inventory of all of his new stuff. Hey, this is great. And then, then these guys show up. You need to come see Pharaoh right now. Okay, what'd you do? He's like, yeah, you know, well, God didn't tell us to come here, but he did say anybody who messes with us, God's going to stop them. And sorry, you know, he says, why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So I took her for my wife. Pharaoh is a guy that tells everybody he is a God. And if the guy who runs around telling everybody he's a God tells you you have a pride problem, you have a pride problem, okay? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Pharaoh's like, please just go and pray to your God that this gets better. So, now in Genesis 12, when Abraham is first saved, what he does is he talks to people, and people begin to understand who God is, and it has an implication in the text that they followed him. So he evangelizes a bunch of converts. Here, just a few verses later, Abraham is a deplorable representative of who God is. And this is still true today. Some people hate Christianity because of the sins of Christians. And yet the Bible is the first to show it. The Bible is the most honest about this issue. So the what in the world question, why does God bless them when they lied? Well, I think the question itself is a problem because it implies that there are people who deserve to be blessed. Because we have done something that's right. The scriptures show that God just can't work with good guys because there aren't any good guys. So he takes bad guys and God changes them. This is what he does with Abraham. God is always the hero of the story. Always. God delivers Abraham, not because Abraham was good, but because God is good and God is faithful and God is true and God wants to grow Abraham. If you read other religious literature about different people's prophets, they're like, Amazing, always perfect, never screw up. The Bible, it's like, who do you got? Moses? Oh, yeah, murderer. King David? Oh, yeah, adulterer. Every person you see in the scriptures, it shows you the flaws because it wants to understand that we are a messed up people and our God is a good God. Now, open your Bibles at Genesis chapter 26. I'll show you how Abraham's son did the exact same thing. And as we go here, I want you to understand that God does not bless sin. I think, I think what he's showing us is that people who love him are still prone to failure. This is why we are all hypocrites. When someone around you fails, you should pray for them. You should love them. If it's at all possible, help them to understand redemption better. And God wants us to learn from other people and their missteps so that we don't always keep doing the things, we don't keep repeating the horrible atrocities of history. Genesis 26, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was, that was in the days of Abraham. So it starts off and it reminds you of Genesis 12. and the, It's connecting these two stories together. And so here, in a famine, things get hard. Goods cost more than they should. Employment is hard to find. No one's paying enough. It's like a recession or a depression. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now Isaac is Abraham's son. He has now grown up. He's a man. He's got his own family. So when hardships come, how is he going to handle it? How is he going to lead his family? Verse 2, And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. 
<laughs> Why? Because he knows the story. Don't be a dummy like your dad. Don't go down to Egypt. Listen to me. He went down to Egypt. He's got this girlfriend named Hagar. That's going to cause problems for a few thousand years. Don't do it. Dwell in the land, I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. So he gives to him the same promises he gives to his dad. Stay here, trust me, I will bless you. Don't leave the place that is hard. When things got hard for your dad, he looked for the place that was easiest, and he ran there. Don't do that. Don't do that. It's like I, I've told you over the last couple months now, something that is easy does not mean that is from God. Sometimes the hard thing is from God, so we would grow through them. With God, things are difficult sometimes. And I think, you know, you live in California. I live in California. We know sometimes this can be hard because we live in California. Uh, you got regulations. You know, uh, employers aren't paying what you really need to survive. And so sometimes you feel like, do I leave? What do I do? My wife and I had this conversation a couple times about this. But we realized we are called the element. This is where we're supposed to be. While you are here, whatever job you're in, whatever neighborhood you're in, that you are called and meant to be a blessing right there, even in the midst of when it's hard. God calls Isaac, stay there, be a blessing there. Well, there aren't a lot of believers here, God. Exactly. So give birth to some and tell other people about me so people would follow me. So what does Isaac do? How does he live out being a witness? Very poorly. Verse 6. So Isaac settled in Gerar, so he trusts God and he stayed. But when the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. This is exactly what his dad did. Twice. Twice his dad did this. And his mom, I'm telling you, he must have been some great looking grandma because she was about 65 years old when this happened. So... However that works, whatever. Isaac is a believer. He listened to God and stayed, but he is messed up. I think for us, sometimes it's good for us to be able to look at our parents, look at the things they got right, and honestly look at the things that they got wrong. If you're a parent, look at where you're getting it right and where you're getting it wrong and change it. Figure out where you are repeating the sins of your parents. It's, sometimes it's easy when someone points it out, and sometimes we want to get mad about it when somebody points it out. But I'll tell you, this happens in marriages all the time. In premarital counseling, I typically ask couples, give me one thing from your parents' marriage you want to take into yours that you like, and one thing you want to leave behind. And everybody always has the thing they want to leave behind. And, and, I will, and I'll tell you about a couple years down the road when people want to meet with me again, they are usually doing that one thing they said they didn't want to take in their marriage with them. You know what we call that? Monkey see, monkey do. And you're the monkey. That's, that, that's, that's what it is. It's like you say something, that is the dumbest thing in the world. I can't believe I said that. Oh, my parents said it. Oh, that's, that's Here, Here's one for you. Okay, you can just write this down. It's an easy one. If your dad tries to pimp out your mom, don't do that. Okay? <laughs> Don't do it. So this text tells you Isaac sins here because he's afraid of the people and what they can do, so he's a coward. I once heard someone say, faith is confidence and sin has cowardice. Guys, if you are a coward, I hope you don't have a hot spouse because you might give him away. Uh, Isaac sinned because he was afraid. Isaac should have said, my name is Isaac. God sent us here. This is my wife. Don't mess with us. And if you think about it, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. Or not, okay? Uh, Isaac falls into his dad's sin. He's going to learn from it, but again, he messes up. Do, do you think Isaac loves his wife? Of course he loves his wife. He does. It actually tells you that in the scriptures. Genesis twenty four sixty seven. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. 
It didn't have to tell you that he loved her. It specifically tells you that so you would understand he loves her. But the woman he loves, he now exposes her to harm. He loves her, but he sins against her. This is all like Christian husbands and wives today. We are evil. God himself is good, and we sin against one another all the time. Ladies, don't raise your hands, okay? But how many of you think your husband has done or said stupid things? Okay, you giggle, so that means you think, he still loves you. He's just evil and stupid, okay? It's just, it's just how it is, right? I, notice I'm not asking the lady or the husband that same question because I'm trying not to be a stupid, so I'm just going <laughs> to... Stress the God who's Verse 8, okay? Uh, when he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. Now, the word laugh there in the text, it does mean laugh, but it has this idea of a husband and wife, how they laugh with each other when they know each other so well. That's why some translations will use the word caress there. It's like he's kissing her neck and her shoulders. Hey, baby, what's going on? She's giggling like a schoolgirl. She's like, hee-hee-hee-hee. I know I can't giggle like a girl, but that's, in my mind, Hands go up. That's what happens, okay? So, so Bemlech, he's like, what kind of hillbilly nonsense is this, right? That's, he said that's his, if, if that's his sister, they got some problems, right? Verse 9, so Bemlech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife, because he's not stupid. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. It's kind of endearing. He thought his wife was this good looking, right? Verse 10, Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Now, in this story, is Abimelech a believer or an unbeliever? He's an unbeliever. He's an unbeliever. But is he moral or immoral? He's moral in this instance. There's other places where he's not, but in this instance, he's very moral. Is Isaac a believer or an unbeliever? He's a believer, but is he moral or immoral? He's immoral in this instance. What the chapter is doing is it's juxtaposing the immorality of the believer and the morality of the unbeliever. The immoral believer gets rebuked by the moral unbeliever. And what this tells you is that Christians aren't always right and non-Christians aren't always wrong. Christians aren't always the good guys and non-Christians aren't always the bad guys. The text is trying to show us that morality has nothing to do with salvation. Morality has nothing to do with salvation. Now, as believers, should we be moral? Yes. Yes, we should. But we are saved in spite of our morality, not because of it. This is why you go back to the what in the world question. Why does God bless them when they lie? This is why the question implies that there are some people who deserve to be blessed because they've done the right thing. It's why the scriptures teach that God cannot just work with the good guys. Why? There aren't any, right? We're all bad guys. We all got the black hat. He's the white hat. We're just the bad guys. That's what we must understand in this, that God is the one who rescues, that God is the one who saves. So God takes bad guys and he redeems and he changes them. That's what he does with Abraham. That's what he does with Isaac and the rest of chapter 26. That's what he does with people throughout the rest of the scriptures. And that's what he does with us. And I think that answers the question, but I got a little bit further to go here, so just walk with me with this. Because this is the problem still with Christians today. One of the major objections to Christianity people say is, aren't churches filled with hypocrites? And the answer to that is, yes, yes, it is. They say, don't you have people who are supposed to love God and love others, but they don't love anybody? Yes, we do. Hasn't the church been responsible for atrocities, some of the crusades and the inquisitions and the burning of witches? 
Yeah. Doesn't history demonstrate that Christianity and its people are defective? Well, it shows that its people are defective, most certainly. Why would I become a Christian after seeing all of this and knowing how many flawed and hypocritical people are inside the church? There's a book called Unchristian. It came out years ago. It's based on a research study that showed 85% of unchurched young adults believe Christians to be hypocritical. 47% of young adults inside the church say the same thing. What's also funny is most of those people that say all those others are hypocritical do not think themselves as hypocritical. They think other people are. We are all hypocrites, every single one of us. I am, you are. We are evil and dumb, and our God is good. I was going through some old notes on Genesis 12 and 26 when we did the book of Genesis about five years ago, and this is actually what I told you about hypocrisy back then. First off, number one, just because people don't live up to a message does not mean the message itself is wrong. Okay? Isaac and Abraham both have faith in a good and gracious God, and they both mess up multiple times in their lives. The Bible is full of people who fail, and yet you see that God comes and saves in spite of our sin. This is why our message to the world is not and cannot be our morality. Our message must be the person of Jesus Christ. Yes, we should be better. We should be nicer. We should be more loving. But it is Jesus who saves. And in the end, Christians aren't the only ones who are hypocrites. The whole world is. Stephen Nordby once wrote this. He said, At a recent annual meeting of the American Heart Association in Atlanta, 300,000 doctors and researchers came together to discuss the importance of low-fat diets and keeping our hearts healthy. But during mealtimes, they consumed fat-filled fast food, bacon cheeseburgers, and chili fries at the same artery-clogging rate as people from any other convention would. One cardiologist was asked, Aren't you concerned that your bad eating habits will be a bad example? He replied, Not me. I took my name tag off. (laughs) John Ortberg quoted that once, and then he said this. He goes, as a Christian, you never get to take your name tag off. We don't. We live because our Savior has brought us to life and sends us out into the world. The truth is that the presence of hypocrites within a movement does not show the movement itself was false. And secondly, every belief system in any ideology or movement will attract people to it who do not live up to it. This is true from everything from Christianity to environmentalism to liberalism to conservatism. Everybody, every movement has people that don't live up to it, and the people within those movements tend to look at people in other movements and think the worst about them. Do you know the word hypocrite is used 17 times in the scriptures, and every single time it is used by Jesus? 17 times. Dallas Willard wrote this. He said, It is clear from the literary records that it was Jesus alone who brought this term hypocrisy and the corresponding character into the moral. Uh, record of the Western world. It is ironic that even when, precisely when, we criticize the church for producing hypocrites, we pay tribute to Jesus, whose teaching gave us the picture of hypocrisy that shapes our moral understanding 2,000 years later. Matthew chapter 23, the whole chapter is given over to Jesus' discourse about hypocrisy. Verse 2, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. This is the place of authority. Verse 3, for they preach but do not practice. That's hypocrisy. Verse 4, they tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. That's hypocrisy. Verse 13, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. That's hypocrisy. Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, mint, and dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, and mercy, and faithfulness. Verse 25, hypocrites. Verse 27, hypocrites. Verse 28, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. 
Think of the person in your life who you would say is the most spiritual, the person who has it most together in the relationship with God. It is not me, by the way. Think of, picture that person, right? That's the Pharisees. It is the person that the people in this culture would look at and say, they're the most spiritual. They have it all together. Those guys are the ones. That's what this is talking. That's who he's talking to. And so what it tells you is Jesus is talking about a condition that is a hairbreadth away for anybody who takes faith in God seriously. Anybody. Jesus knew the condition would infiltrate any movement, including his. And so when we read these words, we should not pretend that we are exempt. We are like Abraham. We are like Isaac. Maybe you haven't tried to give your spouse away, but we've all done hypocritical things. And people will ask questions. Well, how do you defend the Crusades or the Inquisitions or the burning of witches or the sexual abuse by the clergy in the church today? And the answer is, you don't. You call it sin. You say it is evil and horrible, and God hates sin. That is horrible. But there's another reality in this as well, that there have been other regimes that do not believe in God and have done much more heinous evil. Stalin, Hitler, Mao, just between the three of them, they are thought in the 20th century to cause 70 to 100 million deaths. And any person I know, whether an atheist or a Christian, would both say that this is wrong. And my conviction is that when people cease to believe that they are created by a good and holy and loving God that we are accountable to, it opens the door for all kinds of things that we would think unthinkable. This is what Jesus says, Matthew five forty three to 45 in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. How do you stop being hypocritical to others? You love them. You stop viewing them as less than you. You stop trying to protect yourself and love others more than you love yourself. You love God first and other people. And that should move us to a place where we stop being so hypocritical. Jesus tells us this command is rooted in the nature of God. Jesus says, be like him. Well, what does that look like? Well, the last miracle that Jesus ever performs, he's in the garden with some of his disciples. The soldiers are coming to arrest him and to take him away to have him crucified. And one of his disciples, a guy named Peter, pulls out a sword and he goes to battle, chops off the, this ear of the soldier from the high priest called Malchus. Boom, chops off his ear. And so Jesus goes and he's like, put the sword away, grabs the ear, Sticks it, I don't know if that's the sound it made, but sticks it back on, on Malchus's head. And I don't know if there's a little conversation that takes place there. You know, sorry, I've been working on Peter for three years. He's still got some issues, you know. <laughs> Apologize for the ear. Now, but can you imagine what happens if Malchus is married and he gets home that night? And his wife's like, hey, how'd your day go? Well, I got my ear cut off. <laughs> it was kind of crazy. But then the strangest thing happened. The guy that I went to have arrested, to be killed, to be crucified... He loved me, and he stuck it back, and he healed me. Why would he do that? And then this Roman, or this, this soldier from the temple probably understands now all the stuff that happened with Jesus' death and resurrection, and it moves into a place. Why? Because Jesus loved his enemy. That's how you do that. Dale Bruner said it like this. He goes, Jesus' enemies are not his only problem. Jesus' overzealous followers have historically been as painful to him. <laughs> Abraham wasn't righteous. Abraham is a knucklehead. He viewed Pharaoh and the Egyptians as the enemy, as the other, so he acted like a hypocrite. Isaac, same thing. He viewed Abimelech and the people there as the other, as the enemies, and so he acts like a hypocrite. Why would you do this and lie to us? It's the same reason we all do it. It's the same reason we love ourselves more than our God and we love ourselves more than other people. We are all the same. We are sinful and lost. And this is the good news of the gospel. 
that Jesus comes and becomes one of us. He who knew no sin took on the weight and the burden of sin on the cross for our sake. All the hypocritical stuff we have done, he takes care of. He who was perfect took on the broken imperfection and darkness of the world, including the hypocrisy of the human race. The story of Jesus is not just the story of someone who died at the hands of his enemies. It's the story of someone who died for the sake of his enemies. If you look at the world, it is sinful human beings and a sinless Savior who takes on the sins of the world. And if you are someone and hypocrisy has kept you from following Jesus because of Jesus' people, know that he hates it more than you. He hates it more than you. He hates it so much that he's the one who drew the picture of it that still informs us 2,000 years later. And if you in your life are someone who is battling hypocrisy, Jesus can still deliver you from it. Ephesians 5 1 says, We are to be imitators of God as dearly loved children. Live lives of love. Why? Because that puts us in the frame of mind to begin to understand redemption, what God has done, that He is faithful, that He is the one who came and rescued us, because He knows that no one could save themselves. No one could take care of their own sin. So He comes and He deals with it to make us righteous. God knows that we are a people who mess up. That's not meant to be an excuse. You don't get an excuse to be a hypocrite. Okay? But God knows that we are a hypocritical people. And only by learning to love him more and others more than ourselves are we going to stop being those hypocritical people. God calls us. I mean, you, you may not be an, an Abraham or an Isaac and, and, again, tried to give your spouse away, but you've done something else. We all have. And this is why we understand the goodness of God, because God doesn't leave us in the midst of our shame and our guilt and our pain. He lifts us out of it and says, I love you, and I want you to follow me, and I want to rescue you, and I am going to redeem you. And what has happened in the past in your life does not have to define the rest of it. And I will rescue you and save, because he is good, because, because there are no good guys. There's our sinless Savior, and then there's the rest of us. And he is the one who rescues. This is why we go to communion every week. It's a great place to remember the places of hypocrisy in our lives that have been taken care of at the place of the cross. That's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip it in the wine of the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me so that we can be this people who live in his grace and goodness out in the world, not carrying our shame around day by day. Uh, the band's going to come up. As they do, you can take communion. be some deacons or elders in the back. And if you guys need prayer, they would love to pray with you. Uh, maybe you are hypocritical and you want to stop, or maybe someone has done something to you and you can't trust Jesus or Christians because you feel what somebody like that has done to you. They'd love to pray with you about that. If you have any prayer requests, they'd love to pray with you about those things. And there's offering boxes in the sidewall on the back, and we give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass a plate. It's a response to what he's done. Uh, there's some food in the back. Grab something to eat. Meet some other people. Uh, ask one another maybe some questions. I think it's good for us to be in one another's lives. So that, I, I think if Abraham or Isaac had someone close enough to them when they were ready to kind of do this, they'd be like, dude, that's your wife. Knock it off. You know, but maybe they didn't. And maybe they just needed that. You and I need one another in each other's lives to be able to say the truth and speak the truth so that we will begin to live the life God calls us to. And this is why we always want to connect you in community with each other. So if you meet someone, maybe this week, sit down and have a conversation about what hypocritical things are in your life right now and be honest about them. Ask them, where in my life am I? Do you see me being a hypocrite? And if you trust them enough, let them answer and don't be mad at them. My, sometimes my GC does this. They, like we got to the end of this question a couple weeks ago, and my GC leader goes, he goes, where, where, where's, where am I spiritually blind? And I go, right here. And for some reason, it's my spiritual gift. I tell people where they're screwing up. 
<laughs> you can't, don't take joy in it. But step into one another's lives and help one another and find someone you trust enough that can tell you the truth so that you can grow. I mean, that's why we do this one another. Our, worshiping Jesus is also lived out in how we live and fellowship with one another. So live with one another. Follow him. And hopefully in the end, we'll be less hypocritical people. But again, we are not blessed because of our goodness. We are blessed because of our good God who has rescued and saved us. Mike Harmon is going to come pray for us this morning. Speaks to the heart of Mike. Mike loves these kind of things. <laughs> it's not our goodness that saves us. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I want to pray for us this morning. Lord, I, uh, I kind of resist the idea of being called a hypocrite. Uh, we re- we re- resist that. We don't like the truth that that speaks to our hearts, that uh, we fall away short. Um, Father, we're not whole. We're not integrous. We're broken and we're shattered and, and we're a mixed message. Uh, Father, I thank you that you, that Jesus is our message always. Uh, we receive that message that makes us whole. We receive the death the resurrection that makes us new creations. And Lord, we have a word to our world and to one another, and it is Jesus. And even though our lives don't reflect clearly all the time, you are making us to be better representations. But more so, Lord, that is part of our message, that we are broken still, but you are making us new. You are making us whole because of your great goodness. And that is our message to the world. It's our message to one another that you've so loved us, that you've stepped into our brokenness, that you are making us whole. You're putting us back together where we've been disintegrated, where we've been affected and, and broken by our sin and the sins of others. Lord, I, I, I pray that we would embrace the work of the Holy Spirit and not rebuff that hard word of being a hypocrite, but rather we would understand that we are disintegrated and broken and that your love and your goodness is putting us back together again. And that in that, we have a message to our broken world. We have a God who so loves that he's wanting to put us back together again. And he wants to put you back together again. Lord, help us to represent you well, even in our brokenness. That we speak of you, a God who is good, a God who is faithful, a God who is able And that's our message to ourselves and to one another and to those in our midst who are lost. Lord, we are just like them, broken, hiding, and disintegrated. But we are just being put back together by a good and gracious God. We love you and thank you that you continue to step into our lives. Help us to love you more and one another more. In Jesus' name, amen.